Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. As veterans and families of veterans, we're all qualified and have a voice in this conversation. Today, we are with the voice of Bob Buck. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it is an honor. It is really an honor. We're going to go through your short experience with the military, the t- from the time you entered your experience in, in the military, in war, and in the time coming home. Sure. So maybe we could start off by asking, why did you join the military? Well, I, I did have a sense of patriotism, although I don't think my dad, who was a World War II veteran, was all that patriotic. I mean, we didn't have a flag in front of the house, for instance, or things like that, but he, he didn't discourage... My enlistment, which I did at age 17 in September of 1968 and joined the Marines. You know, uh, as odd as it sounds, there was a television show, probably 1965 and 66, I remember as a sophomore in high school, called Combat. And the lead character in this show was a guy named Vic Morrow, who played the role of Sergeant Saunders. He was a squad leader in World War II. I thought he was the coolest cat going. <laughs> I, I, I really did. I, I just thought him and his band of guys and and they got into some quasi-realistic uh, situations, et cetera, and of course, always came out on the good end of it. But it wasn't necessarily the glorified war story that kids of my age might have become accustomed to that had come out of the 40s following World War II. This one was a little bit more realistic. And I thought, you know, look at that Sergeant Saunders. He's uh, he's a cool cat. I Maybe I should give some thought, give some thought to joining the service and so that idea never really went away until in the senior year in high school. I thought, yep, I'm, I'm going to do it after high school and enlisted, as I mentioned, in September of 68. So, so a TV show was your inspiration? For Probably was one of the... Uh, <laughs> That's was, crazy. Yeah, isn't that, it sounds crazy. Okay. But, you know, this became part of the problem because I had this romantic notion of what service would be and, and service in a war, the Vietnam War in 1968 was reaching its absolute zenith, a time when shortly thereafter we would reach over 500,000 troops in country, as they said, in Vietnam, never to reach that level of armed force in Vietnam again. And this came in the summer of 69. But in 1967 and 68, there were major battles during what was referred to as the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, where the North Vietnamese had made some rather substantial gains against Americans, this was the reality of the Vietnam War, but yet I was seeing Vietnam somewhat and service through this lens of this TV show, Combat. So 
It, I must admit, looking at it that way, it sounds a bit preposterous, I think. Well, let, let's go back and ask you, Bob, what were your expectations when you entered the military? Well, I thought this was the way to serve God and country. I, I wasn't actually highly religious kind of a kid, although I went to a Catholic all-boys high school in Milwaukee called Francis Jordan since closed. But it, it was that notion of you do what's right for your country, you're proud to be an American, uh, some of the stuff that we hear pretty commonly in songs nowadays. And lo and behold, I think that's what I expected it would be. It would be mostly, while it would be hard work, it would be a rewarding experience and, and one that I would be proud of. And you actually went off, joined the Marines yes. and went over to Vietnam. But what were your expectations about war itself? The well, uh, you know, um, I didn't know that people died. I didn't know that people lost their limbs. I didn't know that people screamed when they were wounded. I know, here again, this somewhat, it's actually, I can't believe I was that stupid to think <laughs> that war is not hell, to, to uh, use that phrase. The first patrol that I was on when um, we received enemy fire was noteworthy. We were in a particularly difficult area that was full of Viet Cong and some North Vietnamese regulars. And I was in a squad of roughly 10 guys, probably the seventh man back. This was the first patrol that I was on. And the point man had stopped at a hedge, a tree line, where a kid, probably eight years old, asked him for a cigarette. This was a fairly common occurrence in Vietnam. The children would ask for cigarettes from American GIs. And as the Marine took his pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and gave one to the kid, two Viet Cong opened up from the tree line with AK-47s. They killed him, and they killed the second man back, and they wounded another guy. I was frozen with fear and was kneeling down behind a rock when the squad leader came up and, and yelled in my ear to get moving. And that shocked me into moving forward and trying to engage the battle. But, you know, I mentioned this story because Vietnam was an experience of many opposites. It was a country that was absolutely beautiful, stunning in its, in its different shades of green. Yet it was a highly dangerous place and it, and it was terrifying one wouldn't necessarily put those two together. But for years and years, I thought about the death of that Marine that day on that patrol until I finally realized somewhat recently, of all things, 50 years after the fact, that this Marine, this Marine's last act on earth was an act of kindness mm -hmm. and generosity. And there, too, lies some of this opposite. So that's a long way of answering your question about what did I expect. I didn't expect to encounter some of these enormous and complex opposites that I began to, and paradoxes that I began to see. I mean, the whole notion of Vietnam, according to Richard Nixon, certainly well publicized, was to win hearts and minds. And as a theory, it was pretty sound. Let's try to make ourselves amenable to these people, the Vietnam population. Let's try to provide them with health and welfare, and they'll come to our side, was the basic idea. However, the way that it was carried out was to have carpet bombings of North Vietnam and select sections of South Vietnam and to engage in assaults and free fire zones, etc. So here again, this notion of opposites really sent me spinning, expecting that I would see examples of valor and fighting for the good cause and this, that, and the other. It was war was a daily slog through fatigue and fear and and enormous difficulty, and I began to learn that lesson from that first firefight onward. 
So if we were to go back to the whole idea of what was your expectation, what would actually happen? But if we think about this not as the the political or, or, or overall goal of the war, but and personally, I think a lot of us, the main goal was to stay alive right. and not be responsible for the death of any of the people next to us. But it, it, a lot of us played cops and robbers and military when we were kids and we hid behind rocks with sticks and all of that. And it was fun and somebody died and you fell over and all that. But when it actually, the, the, the aspect of what actually happens in war the, the the barbarism of it, the, the actual the person doesn't get up and walk away. Did that have an effect on you that 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 additional element of warfare that was really the savage part of it? Well, it did in, in many different ways and perhaps most powerfully and profoundly in order to survive in Vietnam. I had to learn how to deny reality. And by that, I mean, I needed to learn how to fool myself. We would have a Marine that would die or get mortally wounded that we would put on a helicopter. And once he was gone, we would never talk about him again. If somebody said, hey, where's Smith? Oh, Smith is just he's, he's just, he's away. He was never dead. He was just away. Because we couldn't handle, at least I couldn't handle the concept of someone dying over there, as really preposterous as that sounds, because it would have made me feel more vulnerable to death. So somehow this was like a some sort of weird inoculation that if I didn't admit that someone died, maybe I wouldn't die. Simultaneously, I had to learn how to control my fear. Vietnam was a terrifying place each and every day. It was particularly terrifying at night. And I needed to somehow numb myself to the pain of losing comrades and numb myself to the ongoing fear that I was experiencing from perhaps dying any second now in any number of different ways. And that became almost a full-time job to fool myself emotionally so that I could continue to function from one day to the next. Our week would be Monday you'd go out on a patrol for six hours, Tuesday night you'd go out on an ambush, which would be four or five guys for four or five hours, and Wednesday you would fill sandbags and dig trenches to fortify your position. And Thursday, you'd start it all over again. And, and you, were, you were never not tired beyond the most tired you'd ever been in your life. So you had fatigue, fear, and terror, all these things working. Learning how to, to deny the feelings associated with those things just so you could find a way to survive and try to stay alive for another day. So that, that sense of staying alive for another day, that was really the 360-degree focus of right. your existence. You, did you start to not forget about your family, but forget about life in the United States, except for those certain moments where you could drift off there, but then you would come back. But were you aware? You, you mentioned this numbing. Were yeah. you aware that you were numbing yourself? No, I think it was happening slowly and incrementally. I didn't think to myself, Oh, look at this. I've discovered a new coping mechanism or something. <laughs> I just So you had no built in psychiatrist no. that was telling you this is what you're doing, this I is what you're experiencing, to, watch out for this. Trying to find a way to make it work. I you know, I stayed as close as I could to the guys that I thought really had their act together. In other words, that were concentrating on how to engage the enemy and keep as much favorable to themselves. In other words, I remember being out on patrols and some of the guys that had more time in Vietnam than I did in combat would would go off as a pair and they'd begin to look for boot prints or shoe prints or sandal prints or whatever just to see had the Viet Cong or the NVA Army been around. They, they both wore different kinds of footwear. The, 
Viet Cong wore sandals that were made out of old tires. And the North Vietnamese Army wore a boot that kind of looked like a tennis shoe almost. So there would be a different... Now, if you were up against NVA, that would mean different kind of tactics. So these guys would go off and, and look for, were they there? Did they, did they sit here? Did they spend any time here? Which direction did they go? Just so they'd have a better opportunity to stay alive if, in fact, we were hit. And so I paid close attention to what they did, and I tried to do many of those very same things myself that occupied a lot of time. This was like learning how to, how to track other human beings, quite literally, so that you yourself might have a higher survival rate. So in addition to the, the kind of subconscious numbing that I was doing, I was also actively involved in trying to find and implement ways to save my life. And it didn't leave a lot of time to think about stuff back home. So if I were to introduce the, the topic of hypervigilance, would you say <laughs> yeah. would you say this is what hypervigilance was, looking at every regard that you could that focused on saving your life and yes. keeping you alive, yeah, that's, watching that's, for everything that might be around? Yeah. I'm sure you had heightened this, mm -hmm. even extended your hearing to, yeah. to your sense of smell, yeah. all of these things that were heightened. And, were you, and you weren't really necessarily consciously aware that you were doing this. This is really, you're in survival mode. Right. right. So if we extend this now all the way through your full tour, how mm -hmm. long did your tour of I was there this for 10 and a half months. For 10 and a half yep. months. And then uh, when your time came, and, and this 10 and a half months was spent with this hypervigilance right. and this experience at war, staying alive, if I were to mention something called the will to live, mm -hmm. was that important to you? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I had a very strong will to live. Oddly enough, there was a period of time, and I, I guess from the reading I've done, this is a fairly common mindset, that after about eight months of being there, I began to not care. I, I began to take risks that I otherwise would not have taken chasing after Viet Cong when they were running away and, and trying to catch them and kill them and I mean, running into areas that had been booby-trapped, but, wow, oh, what the hell, I'm going to go after these guys. I mean, really stupid kind of behaviors because after this eight-month period or so of being there, I began to get a pretty deep sense of hopelessness. I felt like I'd been there forever. I felt like I was going to be there forever. And if I wasn't there forever, I was going to die. Mm. So... What the hell? I'm going after them first. Let, let me ask you one more question on that, Bob. Did your sense of staying alive ever turn to just anger at the people that were there rather than fighting for the goal and the mission? Did, you, did this ever turn into these are the guys that are tormenting us with ambushes? These are the guys that are out there so that you actually got personally involved, like you say, killing these people right. just to stop the madness of what you were involved in, but not necessarily anything to do with the mission of the overall war. I think I lost sight of the, the mission actually pretty early on because of, I don't consider myself a cynic necessarily, but I began to become quite sarcastic about Vietnam after as little as three or four months. I began to see the futility. Why would we continue? Let me give you an example. I was in the northern part of Vietnam, which was referred to as I-Corps in, in one of the northernmost provinces. And we, as Marine Combat Soldiers had the responsibility for providing protection for a group of minesweepers on a road. So the way it worked was minesweepers, since they were unarmed and carrying, much like you might see somebody in a park with a device to find coins, they would go in front of us and look for mines. But since they were not riflemen, the enemy didn't see them as being as valuable as it would be to kill a rifleman. So they, the enemy would, when we were in these road sweeps, as they were called, they would generally target the, the riflemen. 
And our job was to minesweep a road that was not even being used by the Americans. The road was being used by the South Vietnamese Army because the Americans, Marines in this case, deemed that road to be too dangerous with mines, so therefore we're not going to send any vehicles down it. So these kind of experiences where you're minesweeping a road to keep it open, even though it's not even utilized, because it's too heavily mined, became like the old Catch-22 book. And I couldn't line up the mission of Vietnam, whether it was win hearts and mines or gain territory or whatever it might have been, as I was able to before I ever got over there, where I thought the mission was fairly clear that we were fighting to keep a country free for democracy. And so this became an ongoing point of disorientation, confusion, anger. And some of that anger I did direct at the people I perceived to be my enemies, although looking back on it now, I I have no animus whatsoever toward what would have been Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army soldiers. They were simply young people doing as I was, being led by others who should have known better. So so after this period of time, I don't want to belabor this, but these men that you would chase after, the Viet Cong that you would chase after, this became just personal a- anger. And I, I'm asking, I'm not saying this. But. There, there was anger involved, certainly, in attempts to try to do what war is designed to do, and that's eliminate your enemy. Even though, I mean, here too, uh, I was beginning to have second thoughts because, I mean, I didn't know any of these people. It's not uh, it's Jim or Tim or Bill and Sam and all. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. This was simply somebody running around with an AK-47 and a pair of black pajamas. Right. So, But the finality of what we did, I think, right. uh, the, the dead bodies, the killing of right. people uh, w- without the mission being there, would that at that time were you aware of this that you weren't really following the mission as much as it was just a survival? Were you aware of that at the time, or were you was this just a continuation of war as you had known it from from three months after you got there? That's I'm not I really don't know I, I don't think I've thought of that question. It was just a very confusing period, and I'll tell you why because we had a difficult time in the Marine Corps for whatever reason or reasons I don't know getting the proper supplies to, to do what we needed to do. I'm talking about boots and clothes and, and machine gun barrels. And, I mean, pretty much the stuff of war. And I couldn't understand why we who were on, literally on the front line would be treated like that when our mission was to carry forth and protect South Vietnam's democracy. Why wouldn't we get what we needed and be taken care of first? These were some pretty heavy questions for an 18, 19-year-old kid. And the feelings of of being betrayed were were starting to creep in. So where did my commitment to the mission end and my anger at the enemy start and the enemy at my own government begin and the the peculiarities associated with all of what was going on? You know, it's sort of like a bowl of noodles. You can reach in there and pull one out, but I don't know if you'd get the one you were looking for. And they're all intermixed oh, and they're intertwined. All knotted up and twisted up. Plus, we would need to add to this patriotism, honor, Absolutely. the Marine Corps, all of these yeah. things are all have to be weighing very, very heavily on you. What, what your family would think of you, what the country would think of you, all of these are maybe, maybe not necessarily be in the forefront of your thinking, but they, they all have to be playing a part of how you're acting and how you're thinking about this experience. And from what they thought and what it was actually, what the actual experience was. So I'm wondering at what point 
when we have the expectation to vote more, is at what point or is it gradual that we the actuality of it is completely different from the expectations? I think while there are things that happen suddenly, like that patrol where the point man was shot and the man behind him, the actual realizations that I'm talking about come on somewhat gradually. gradually. And they become a rather large ball rolling downhill until you can't stop them. This, and I will say that part of the confusion over there, this was not a the finest hour for the hierarchy of the United States Marine Corps, in my opinion. I was a lance corporal, which is an E3. I was a squad leader, which is almost unheard of in, in this day and age where the rank is generally sergeant. But we had so many guys wounded that I advanced to the role of squad leader and had that for a month and a half. During the time that I was on combat squads for that ten and a half months, to my knowledge, there was only one time that we were, or two times that we were out with a staff sergeant would be an E6, or anyone above the rank of sergeant. And I don't recall being out with anyone above the rank of first lieutenant on most actions. So generally, whether it's the Marine Corps or the Navy or the Coast Guard or the Merchant Marine, it doesn't matter. You are taught a certain chain of command and you're taught to follow your leadership. And your leadership is generally that. They're, they're leading the way or they're at least participating. But <laughs> in combat situations in Vietnam between, I'll be very specific here, between May of 1969 and March of 1970, I did not see a great deal of Marine leadership in life and death situations, I'm sorry to say. Bob, I think that is a topic we could save for its own podcast. I would agree with that in many ways. But let's go on now. And you've come to your 10 and a half months in in Vietnam. You've had all of these experiences. You're certainly welcome to share any more of that information that you like. But now you have an expectation you're going home. What is your expectation of getting home? Are you expecting life as it was before you went to war, or are you noticeably aware that this is going to be different for you? Well, I'll answer that directly, but let me just give you this backdrop. I served for 18 months of active duty, and I I had a three-year enlistment, but I was discharged 18 months early because at that time, the United States government was really trying to reduce the size of the armed forces. So, If you had certain qualifiers, such as X number of months in combat versus X number of years on an enlistment, etc., there was a formula by which you could qualify for an early out if you wanted. And I was given a choice, and I said, yes, I would like to leave after 18 months. So coming home now at 19 years old, I was a combat veteran, and I expected to be honored upon arriving home. I expected to be somewhat celebrated for my service and thanked, and some gratitude expressed in some form or fashion. And I kind of thought I'd sort of pick up where I left off with my buddies, the ones I knew from high school. Now, by this time, the cadre of guys that I graduated from high school with would have completed their first year of college, so they'd, they'd be college sophomores. And, in fact, none of those things happened when I came home, oddly enough, with one minor exception. I happened to see a friend of mine from high school one night, and he said, hey, Bob, I heard you got back. Good to see you. His name was Johnny. I said, well, it's good to see you too, Johnny. And he said, hey, listen, I'm having some of the guys over in my basement, uh, rec room on uh, Friday night. We're going to play some cards. Will you come over? I said, sure, I'd love to. He said, look, here's the way we do it is everybody brings his own six-pack, and then we just sit around and play cards. So I said, sounds good to me. So I bring a six-pack of beer, and we're sitting in Johnny's basement, and we're playing, I don't know what the hell we're playing, poker maybe. And about 45 minutes into it, the cards are getting shuffled around the table. 
chips. And one guy, his name is Walter. Walter says, so Bob, and he's flipping through his cards. How'd you like the war? (laughs) (laughs) How'd I like the war? (laughs) That's a great question. So now let me tell you something. Up until very recently, I thought this was the stupidest, most (laughs) insensitive question I could have ever heard from anybody. And then one day, almost like an epiphany, I thought, you know, two things happened that night. Number one, Johnny, in his own way, was reaching out and saying, Bob, come on over. We'd like to see you because you're important to us. And number two, Walter, in his own way, how was the war, is reaching out and saying, I don't have the slightest idea what the hell to ask you, Bob, but I at least want to find out how you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, these were both very kind acts. And I, I see them. I'm sorry. I spent so many de- decades just shaking my head <laughs> thinking about that because this was a very kind exchange. And But there were, there were very few of them. That's, in March of 1970, my girlfriend was a freshman at UWM. And uh, while she was not what I would consider strongly anti-war, she was participating in some anti-war demonstrations that were going on on campus. In fact, these demonstrations led to the closing of the university. I went with her and remember observing these things and not really having a strong feeling, oh, those damn hippies. I I didn't feel any of that stuff. I I thought, this is kind of interesting. Look at all this energy. But what happened was, it was sort of a a shocking way to re-enter the community that I had left a year and a half earlier and had now really been sort of stood on its ear because the student demonstrations represented this kind of schism between the generations. The older generations tended to be more in support of Vietnam by extension from their years of World War II service, etc. And the younger ones were revolting, rebelling, and otherwise showing their dissatisfaction with all this. So I came back to a a community where, in pretty short order, I began to really feel disoriented and confused. The friends I had weren't there. Issues and the situations within my own community had changed and were now different. And I felt lost. And it was, that would prove to be, unfortunately, one of the most troublesome aspects of my life going forward was this element of disorientation and confusion. Could you describe that just a little bit sure. better? What, what was the disorientation? What well, was the confusion? It was, I thought, why am I not getting some positive attention for the sacrifices that I made? And I know my comrades are still making over there. And instead, I'm being ignored. And why if what the demonstrators are saying has any validity whatsoever, in the hell are we still there fighting and it doesn't seem to be doing any good? And why is the government really not doing something about this? And how in the heck could they have betrayed me into believing this BS that I was fighting for God and country? And in fact, I don't know what I was fighting for. And on top of that, I know guys that died over there, and I still think about them. So this was enough at 19, certainly, to really begin to make me feel confounded, confused, and then angry. And when the anger began to enter the picture, 
It wasn't long before I found it more difficult to reconcile and line up a lot of these feelings, and the anger became rage. And in some cases, it was almost white hot, that rage. It could just, at the snap of a finger, set me off. I was at a used car lot on Appleton Avenue, just off of 76th in Milwaukee. can't remember what that dealer was anymore. I was going around and around with the salesman who was probably in his late 50s. And we were haggling on the price. And the subject came up that I was a Vietnam combat veteran. And this guy basically told me that we were nothing but a bunch of whiners. <coughs> and I, I thought, well, I'll let that one slide. Maybe I can get 50 bucks off. But he wouldn't let it go. And he wouldn't move on the price. So I thought, this is hopeless. I was getting kind of steamed inside. And I got back in the car that I was using, one of my dad's cars. And I drove home. And as I was passing the lot, this guy was standing next to the car that I wanted. And he gave me the finger. I remember I got home and I, I must have looked kind of weird. And my mom said, well, did you look at that car? I said, yeah. She said, well, you don't look so good. I said, I know that's because I'm going to go back and kill the salesman. <laughs> so she, she was shocked, but I wasn't joking. I wanted to go back and kill him. So I didn't, but <laughs> I acted in plays in high school. So in, in the spring of 1968, I was in some musical production and dancing and singing. And then in March of 1970, I wanted and had some intention to go back and murder a car salesman. Now, something happened between those two dates. And it sort of is an indication of the enormous power that war and impact that war can have on us and how it can change us. And so this uh, anger became rage. But, you know, having learned what I did in Vietnam, which was the way you take care of feelings is by numbing yourself, you can't be walking around with this rage. You are going to hurt somebody, and then you're going to go to prison. So when somebody does something that makes you angry, you better find a way to numb yourself to that anger, to numb yourself to that confusion, to numb yourself to all of these other emotions that are sizable emotions. You need to numb yourself to them just so that you can function, maybe go on to college yourself, etc., etc. And so that started a rather long period of trying to deny the feelings that I truly had and go forth. And at the time, although I found out about it much later, there were very few services and or individual counseling, etc., that were made available to returning combat vets that might have helped them work their way through some of these profound issues that as a young individual they were now confronted with. And I, when I look back on it, just day by day, making me older and more bitter inside. Let's stop. You bring up so many excellent points, Bob. Let me go back and just this whole idea of your friend asking you, first of all, so what was the war like, Bob? (laughs) If we go back to that, when we're talking about our expectations before we go off to the military, wouldn't you have asked that question before you went to war? I mean, I've always thought when people ask me these questions, they're the same questions that I would have asked. It's only the actual experience of war as opposed to the expectation that makes you shocked at the question 
because I think maybe we were shocked at what we actually experienced. Mm -hmm. So the question is just absurd. And the other thing is, if we're comparing all of these, we didn't go off. We don't go off to any of these wars as you would a soccer game. And when we come back, there are consequences that are they are barbaric. They are savage. They are deadly and they are permanent. Mm -hmm. And they include taking away from us the one thing that we are most wanting to keep, and that's our reverence for life, our, our will to live. We want to go home. We want families. We, we want to go on and uh, ha- have jobs and whatever it is that life means to us. So we know the price that's actually paid for all of these things. Does that, when you come back, add to the amount of anger or response you have, not because of necessarily not believing in the mission anymore, but the price that was paid not to believe in the mission as a soldier? Well, I guess the way I see it is I I was stunned at how naive I could have been. Of course, this is what war is. And some people realize this. It's part of the reason why they went to Canada and, and refused the draft, etc. You know, but I didn't. I, I, I had these romantic notions of what war was and what a warrior was, etc. And, of course, when reality slapped me in the face, they were entirely different. And now I had to deal with it. And I so... This naivete became problematic as well and, and required me to try to untangle the whole mess that I found myself in. Let, let's go back and spend a little bit more time on actually coming home. Now, you mentioned your mom and your dad, and so you have that interaction with your family. You've got the interaction with your friends that isn't working out anymore. Tell us about the family. I know you had a brother. I know you have your mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Was there any change in how you felt fit into your family, how they treated you, how they felt about your coming home and that sort of thing? What was that experience Well, like? they were greatly relieved. My mom was just physically relieved. They had aged, certainly in the time that I was gone. So it, it was great to be in their company and what have you. I, I, it's funny that was uh, you know in the late '60s was a time when kids at eighteen, nineteen, twenty would would leave home. Nowadays, it's far more likely that a child might stay until they're twenty five or twenty six and save some money and you know this kind of thing. But that wasn't the case back then. You were kind of in and out of the nest in more of a hurry. But I was happy to be home. I was happy to be back on familiar ground. I was happy to. Not have to be going on patrol throughout the backyard each night and look for vehicle. <laughs> Some of these other things that sound preposterous, but they they really weren't. So that was that was all a plus thing. I uh, there were these feelings that were making me uncomfortable that I was trying to deal with as best that I knew how. I would go to Lake Michigan, and you, you may recall that along the Lake Michigan shore there used to be these anti-erosion devices. They were like long cement piers, and they went into the lake. And not just north of Bradford Beach, as a matter of fact, in Milwaukee, there was a, one of these piers, and adjacent to it was just a probably an anchor of stones, all about two inches. So I had invented a game of throwing stones at this pier. Yeah, I, I mean, I might spend two hours a day throwing stones in the lake, and perfectly enjoyed it because it was there was a certain rhythm to it and a certain repetitiveness that. I didn't have to think about any feelings doing that. I just throw these stones in the water. So, so could we think that was part of isolating yourself? Oh, yeah. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> or, and, or denying yeah. things, or and and to really make it fun, <laughs> I had imaginary imaginary characters, these people that I had in my head, and so I would play games. You know, if you if you hit the pier with so many stones, you get so many points. And 
then I'd start announcing these. I was often just this complete fantasy land. But understandably, but this was <laughs> this, this was in retrospect really avoidance, really, oh, really yeah. isolating. Yeah. That's, that's a great word for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and if we can, Bob, you went back and you said that all of this rage, as anger had turned to rage, and and you. you you were trying to keep it inside, keep it down, not let it come out, not let it be expressed, not engage it. Right. So if this is a large part of who you are now, this rage, you didn't say that, but is this becoming something that you have to develop a facade to face the world with? So they didn't know this part about you or, or didn't touch that experience of war, engage that part. You were, you were protecting that. Is that what we're isolating from? Well, I think so. And a couple of things were happening at the time. One was I had a difficult time holding jobs. I just I would get bored or I'd get in an argument with the boss or the boss wasn't right. And what, after all, what the hell did he know? He was never in combat. I mean, it was just a bad starting point with an employer. <laughs> the reputation that combat veterans had was worsening, and we were being called all kinds of things. And so when I applied for work, I'd stop listing my military experience because I thought this is a detriment. Mm-hmm. Now, and then that played into, well, wait a minute, I thought you were doing this because you were proud of your country. And so I really had a hard time working things out. But yeah, there was an emotional toll and I needed to be careful to keep up the facade of being a of kind of normal, well acclimated individual so I could, you know, get on with my daily life. The one thing that, and uh, this is huge beyond all description. The girlfriend that I had that was the freshman in college when I came home, Joan, has been my wife for almost 48 years. So We were going back to that. <laughs> Joan accepted me and listened to me and to the degree that I was able to express my fears and deep sorrows. She listened endlessly. That, as I look back on it, probably more than absolutely anything else is what kept me going, was having that connection with her. Interesting. A normal person would have these reactions to a circumstance as crude as war. That's true. But here's here's a wrinkle. War, by any number of definitions, is insanity. And so where we might trip ourselves up is by thinking that we should apply some notion of normalcy to something that's insane. And it's simply not possible to do that. There are different flight paths. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. She listened endlessly. That, as I look back on it, probably more than absolutely anything else is what kept me going, was having that connection with her. Interesting. And, and were you able to share these things that you were hiding from her? You know, the more, the, the more intimate experiences of war, 
Were you able to share that with her, or, or was she still engaging the facade that you were putting on? No, I was able to share with her, which probably is what led to the relationship that we had, because she's a very straightforward individual, and I think would have spotted me trying to hide anything. I wasn't able to <laughs> share everything simply because I, I wasn't capable of sharing that with anybody. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, and slowly things came out, I was able to share virtually everything but not right off the bat. Let me, let, let, let me ask a question in this way, and I hope this is respectful. Did you ever get, have a sense, again, in retrospect, thinking that you didn't know who you were anymore when you came home? Because these, these unexpected feelings, the unexpected rage, things that you didn't anticipate coming from, the, the, the rage and all of these things, that you didn't know why you were having these and what to do about them. And why would, why would you... How do we get to a point that we don't understand that we have to get answers for these and try to resolve these as opposed to, as you said, stuffing them back inside and keep keeping them. What is, what is that one act of keeping them inside rather than resolving them that I think is so important to do to resolve these issues rather than let them go on unresolved for, for, for decades? I agree. I just simply did not know of anything that was made available to veterans that would help them get in touch with that stuff. And so it was literally hit and miss. In fact, I never even thought about going to the VA or maybe seeing a health care provider or, or, or a cleric. Or I mean, I just, I thought, I've got to deal with this stuff myself. Now, my girlfriend and then wife was one place, one person with whom I could share these. There was another friend that I had from high school that I reconnected with, and he became a, a marvelous sounding board. And that helped a great deal. But no, I did not know of, nor did I connect with any resources that would have helped me through this stuff. And yes, I did. While it wasn't it wasn't the kind of experience where I felt like I was looking down on myself as some kind of outsider, I did have difficulty wondering sometimes, who is that guy that gets so angry at a used car salesman, etc., or is willing to tell off an employer or argue with a philosophy professor that he basically doesn't know anything. The guy's got a doctorate, for God's sake. (laughs) Because I know better. Because after all, I shot at people. I just, uh, wow. Let let, let me add this to, to the question. Is there something about us when we're 18, 19, 20 years old, we're Marines, we're sailors, we're soldiers, that we have to keep up the facade that we as soldiers, as men, as patriots, as warriors uh, cannot have a weakness in us. We can't have this happen to us, that somehow we have to avoid anybody ever knowing that we were nothing but the ideal soldiers who took our responsibilities as men and achieved them without flaw. Well, there probably is that part of us. I think more specifically... To that end, what it was with me was I needed to be able to justify in my own mind that the time that I spent in Vietnam was worthwhile and was for a worthy cause, and it wasn't because of the future hopes of an oil company drilling offshore. It wasn't all of this kind of thing. That the reason why I was there was still connected to something honorable, and it was only slowly over time that, you know, that element of betrayal got deeper and deeper. I'll tell you a funny thing. Probably four years ago, I, I went to a local department store to buy a golf shirt. 
I found this golf, nice looking golf shirt. So I looked at the label to see what it's made out of. Oh, God, Mary. Made in Vietnam. That's what it's made in Vietnam. And do you know, I'm surprised I didn't get arrested. I stood in that department store for 25 minutes debating whether I was going to buy that shirt. Because it was made in Vietnam. Because it was made in Vietnam. Now at 69 years old, I know it's like that ad with the guy with the one insurance company. I know a thing or two because I know a thing oh, or yeah, two. Yeah. And I, I know how political systems work, and I, and I know how market economies work. Now, Vietnam is a communist country, somewhat like China, that has a market economy. So was all that fighting we did in Vietnam that led to this market economy beneficial for the people that live there? Because now there's hotels in Da Nang and not minefields. This is a lot to think about when you're buying a gosh darn shirt, let me tell you that. <laughs> so I bought the shirt. And uh, <laughs> anyway. Did you buy the shirt and wear it or yeah. buy the shirt and bury it? <laughs> I, I, bought, I bought it and I wore it. <laughs> yeah. I think these are these are a lot of the issues that some of us have, you know, going in and building, re- rebuilding infrastructures and all of these things, building road systems. That That's not the purpose of what we went there for. But it seems like a part of the sell it to the public idea of what wars are all about, you know, that we're building schools and all these sorts of things. But again, going back to this whole concept, and I hope I'm not nitpicking on this. You, you didn't know that you were numbing yourself at war, but now when you get home, that numbing doesn't go away. No. So where is that numbing now? And you say the jobs, you would go to jobs and you wouldn't right. hold on to them. Were, were, was this numbing preventing you or have any issues with you enjoying life when you came home, enjoying sporting events, mm-hmm. enjoying relationships with Joan, as you might have expected them to be, or sporting events or whatever it was that you were enjoying before? What happened to this numbing? Where, where did well, that go? The numbing went on and continued for, well, it continued until almost 1990. And the the negative effects of that numbing, let me put it this way, I learned that one of the greatest challenges of parenthood, uh, I have three children, one of the greatest challenges of parenthood is, is being there. <laughs> being there when the kids need you. And by that, I mean, they want to interact with, depending on what their age is, they want to play a game, they want to, you want to go to the park, you want to, they need help with a project, etc. whatever the case may be. One of the things that the stuffing of these emotions would cause is something would happen and it would take me back to something about Vietnam that made me angry and I would begin devoting some mental energy to whatever that was and why it made me, et cetera. It's just, so this be, almost took on a little bit of a life of its own. So the energy, energy is to me, is a finite thing. You only get so much. So the energy that I'm spending on this thing about Vietnam that is still pissing me off is now energy that is preventing me from being there with any or all of my kids or wife on a vacation or whatever. And so not being there and not having the connection begins to have an impact on me and, and the family. Yeah, but it's a, it's like grabbing smoke, you know. You, you think, hmm. how serious can that be? Not Well, you see, you try to grab it there, and then, and then it's over there, and you just can't get a handle on it. But it really is, it's corrosive. And so the, the aspect of being there on a full-time basis was affected by my energy going forth to try to stuff these feelings that were causing pain. Pain is really kind of the operative word here. 
And the pain from these unreconciled feelings began to get so bad that I began to use alcohol to kill the pain because this was a fast actor. This was a lot quicker than just trying to mentally kill the pain. So, well, now you know where this story is going. You introduce an external substance, in this case alcohol, to do the job of the pain killing. And, of course, it's not killing the pain. It's just simply making it worse. And killing the memories. Right. And now you are literally becoming a different person who's not there because you're, whatever, in my case, planning or thinking about how can I get this stuff to try to kill the pain, et cetera, et cetera. So let, let me stop you for just yeah. a second, Bob, just to go back. When you say you were not there for your your family, are we talking physically or emotionally? Well, I think both? emotionally. Emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I was there. I went to work every day. I had a job. I, uh, you know, brought home a, a paycheck and, and, and we had vacations and all this kind of thing. But, uh, you know, there were times when I just simply was not fully connected the way I could have been. Now, this happens in any, I, I understand this. I'm not being too hard on myself. It happens in any marriage and any life, there's periods when a job is stressful or home life is stressful, and so you have to spend energy on this side or the other. But the the pain associated with Vietnam and the experiences I had there, it was a different kind of pain from what I think you would have had in everyday life. Because, unfortunately, I think combat veterans are different from people that have not had combat experience. And one of the things that can happen is you can begin to have difficulty coping with uh, the reality of it all, and that's what was happening with me. So would it be fair to say that the emotional intimacy with with your children or with, and with your wife was just not there? You couldn't let them, that, that you were still dealing with the facade. They could see this person that you wanted them to see, but they couldn't see. I think that's possible, yes, yeah. or actually quite likely at certain times. It wasn't all the time, but it was some of the time. And the And that, too, is part of the problem, is the element of unpredictability. So when is this going to come up? When is this Bob who's having a difficult time making a connection with us because he's having a struggle with something that happened years ago? When's that guy going to show up and then get the hell lost so we can get back to being a family? I mean, unpredictability is probably it's sometimes referred to as crazy making because the people that you're associated or I mean, associate, the people that you're, you care about, your family, they tend to go, oh, what's the matter with me? Must be something wrong with me. Dad doesn't want to make this, or husband doesn't want to make a connection. Mm-hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with them. But this is part of the insidiousness of it all. So uh, fortunately, and, and this is the good news to the story, is that I did make my way into recovery from alcohol and have since, through counseling and, and a lot of work, found a way to continue to have healthy connections and, and a healthy family and a healthy marriage, etc. And the most remarkable thing that a combat veteran would relate to is I can feel the pain. I can take the pain. I can take life on life's terms. When the pain comes up, I can take the pain. I can accept the pain as part of life and I can move forward. So you have a higher threshold for, for, for pain than you would have imagined yourself to have. Well, I have the ability to feel it. That's certainly true. And, and as such, the ability to live in the present tense. Instead of falling back into the past tense where guilt and shame and a bunch of other stuff, rage is waiting for me to just run me through. 
that doesn't happen. Yeah, I'd like to go back to this one again with your family, with your wife, not being able to share things. And we have spoken about this before. This experience at war is a very intimate experience. Right. It's very, very deep in us. I mean, this is beyond whether you got a deer and deer hunting or whether the Packers won. Or, I mean, this is so much more deep. I'm not sure. Well, let me change that around and say, do you think you ever expected it to be that intimate, that profoundly effective on you, that it would deny you or at least become this numbing, become this barrier to you being, you must have had expectations of being a father that prevented you from being that, that ex- the expectation of being a husband that prevented you from being there. And so now you go into the alcohol, but how long did, with the alcohol, what were the effects of alcohol that added to the distress that you were already experiencing? Well, it accelerated things. I, I didn't use alcohol that way for a very long period of time, but it didn't really need to happen for a long period of time for it to have a pretty serious effect. I did not, to answer that first question directly, no, I didn't expect that <laughs> this is anything like you would have to deal with when you return from that particular experience. So that was that was new and really threw me off my mark. But over time, fortunately, and a lot of help, I found a way to do it. And, and did that help came through? Well, it came through the counseling that I had with regard to alcohol. And then in subsequent years to that, it came through the Vet Center, which is an adjunct to the VA designed to help combat veterans talk about their multitude of feelings related to their experiences. And that really began to, on the multiple occasions that I used the counseling services available there, that really began to help me out and get in touch with letting go of things that for years had uh, been um, kind of always there, but hiding in the background. Unresolved. So if we go back earlier in the conversation, Bob, you mentioned this thing of a bunch of noodles in a bowl, yeah. all these different mm-hmm. expectations. And now that you've come through to the, the resolution of a lot of the issues that you had, or at least taking control of them, were they not controlling you and, and you resolved the issues of the alcohol, looking back on these issues that came from war, are they insurmountable? I mean, or, or when you look back at them, aren't they just normal reactions to what you were experiencing? Or mm-hmm. now if you look at them, where uh, how would you have gone through war and not had had some of these reactions? You, you would almost have had to have been either a psychopath or, or had uh, mental issues going to war and not come home with these intimate, uh, dark, uh, I don't want to say dark, but experiences that we couldn't resolve that, you know, take us into drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and denial and isolation. But do these these things that were numbing, looking back, they kept us alive when we are at war. All of these these hypervigilance and everything kept us alive at war, but they came home with us. But don't they seem like, and I'm being redundant, but don't they seem like normal reactions when you look back on them now? Well, I suppose, that, yes, it, it would. Let me think about this for one second. It, 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 uh, a normal person would have these reactions to a circumstance as crude as war. That's true. But here's here's a wrinkle. War, by any number of definitions, is insanity. And so where we might trip ourselves up is by thinking that we should apply some notion of normalcy to something that's insane. And it's simply not possible to do that. There are different flight paths. One's going east and west, and one is going north and south, and they are never going to run parallel. <laughs> so you're never going to be able to deal with insanity 
with normal thinking or vice versa. So it's kind of a mess. Now, the good news is, is that thanks to the intervention of these professional people, uh, counselors, etc., I was able to get back to, yes, what I would consider a normal way of looking at life and living life and dealing with emotions and what have you. So that's been a huge benefit. What I'd like to do now, and just go through some things briefly, because there's so many different reactions. Right. I mean, when you talked about the, the spaghetti effect or this bowl of spaghetti, all different reactions and emotions and that sort of thing. I, I just want to run through a list of common responses to trauma and, and, and just say, yes, I had that. I mean, we don't need to stop them because there's just too many. But I think this would help the listeners, especially family members, identify what they're seeing in their veteran and help the veteran see mm-hmm. that these are not something unique to them. So let me just run through a couple of these sure. and just say, yeah, I had that, or at least to some degree. Uh, we talk about shock and disbelief at the experience of war. Did you have any sense yes. of that? Mm-hmm. Fear and or anxiety. I think you, you you mentioned you had the fear at war. I did, and anxiety that continued. You know, I refused to take my family camping for 15 years after I came home to Vietnam, and because I was absolutely convinced that there were Viet Cong at like Point Beach State Park. And so if we were going to go camping, oh, God damn it. Now i got to go out on a patrol. So we finally did go camping. We finally did go camping. And I thought, this is the greatest thing in the world. And there's no reason to have brought a rifle because I have nothing to worry about. So, yeah, fear and anxiety. About grief, disorientation, and denial. Grief still was a long time just one of the emotions that probably lasted the longest with me uh, and still does, although it doesn't overwhelm me the way it used to, was grief. Grief yep. over the men that I knew that died and the guilt over the fact that I didn't. And the denial, any denial there? Not really any denial. No. Okay. How about hypervigilance and, and uh, hyper alertness? Let's go camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Irritability, restlessness, outbursts of anger and rage. And this gets into that unpredictability that I was talking about where the family goes, hey, what's with dad? Yeah. Or what's with Bob? I mean, things were rolling along here real smooth, and all of a sudden, there he is. He's, he's pissed yeah. off about something. Well, that goes to the next one. Emotional swings like crying and then laughing. Yeah, well, not necessarily... Crying and laughing, but certainly swings of emotion from depression almost to, you know, kind of a happy, it's very peculiar. Yeah. Worrying or ruminating, you know, intrusive thoughts about the war or about the trauma. Yes. Things I could have done and didn't. That was a fairly common one. And of course, you learn over time that you did what you could at the time you could do it. So, How about nightmares, flashbacks? Yeah, those happen, and they happen in peculiar <laughs> ways. Now, I used, to, I used to think that flashbacks, when they spoke flashbacks, that they were referring to actual battle scenes and things like that, but in nightmares the same way. But actually, it's just having unsettled sleep that oftentimes fills this particular description. And I have, I have some remarkably troubling dreams sometimes. Still, still do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are they are they nightmares though? I mean, that wake you up and they they are. They can be. They yeah. can be. Yep. Oftentimes, it it has something to do with me being chased, and it's just a mess. Okay. How about minimizing the experience? Yeah, I did that for a long time, and that was part of the problem. Until finally, I could face 
the experience realistically and say this wasn't a small thing. This was a big thing. It, it was huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Attempts to avoid anything associated with the trauma. I guess yeah, camping would certainly be yeah. there. But how about places to go? Would, would you go to a full stadium? Are you one of Fourth of July fireworks? That was the one that took me a long time to go back to was fireworks. Yeah. And I still, uh, gee, I hope I don't offend anyone here, but I I, let me put it this way. I could live without the firing of cannons after home runs at a baseball game. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a feeling I'm not the only combat that feels that way. Right. And there would be a whole list of those, <laughs> yeah. those, those type of things that we could. How about loss of intimacy and, and interest in sex? Was that ever an issue for you? No, not really. I don't think it's a tough one to call because the loss of intimacy could happen at those times that there were the emotional swings. I mean, nothing will will really disrupt intimacy than the feeling that a spouse might have of not being able to get next to you and not knowing why. So, yes, I mean, from that standpoint, certainly there is an So the the emotional intimacy as opposed to making a distinction between sex and the physical intimacy, sure. Do you ever have any issues with concerning others or burdening them with, with your experiences or, or the, the, the reactions you were having? Well, to this degree, that, and it's a common phrase from World War II era veterans. You've heard it yourself, I'm sure. It's the ones that don't see it do all the talking. You heard that phrase? <laughs> so this evidently was some kind of code for if you were experiencing one problem or another that just shut up and suck up and take it and if you were a real man, you wouldn't worry about it or, or whatever. So, yeah, that's a pretty messy one right there. Well, that really leads us into the next one, tendency to isolate oneself and feelings of detachment. Yeah, yeah. and just kind of uh, difficulty getting close to someone and what have you. Mm-hmm. And going back to this emotional emotional numbing or restricted range of feelings, that continued for a long time with you after you came home. I think so. You know, one of the things that I did when I went over was I took a risk. I mean, this is obviously, you took a risk by entering the service at at the high point of the Vietnam War. And the opposite of the feeling of detachment, of course, is a sense of connection. And so when you make a connection in almost any human interaction, at least partly and sometimes a large part, is you take a risk. And I was not anxious to take that kind of risk to make a connection with someone or something after having taken a risk of going over there and seeing how that ended up, if that makes sense. Let me ask you if alcohol had any issue or, or, or effect on some of these things. Were you more friendly and outgoing and, and undetached if you were drinking? And, uh, no, no. I, was, I tried to hide my drinking to the best of my ability. I was a solitary drinker. I drank in bars where I, I don't know that was even safe to be drinking in because I didn't think I'd ever be recognized. I, I, didn't, I didn't drink... I drank to kill pain, mm. so I didn't go have a highball and think, isn't this a fun cocktail party? <laughs> I drank as much as I could, as fast as I could to kill the pain, and then I drank to keep the pain away. So it really was a very ugly kind of circumstance. Let me ask you a question. I'll just d- d- distract from these questions just quickly. The experience of alcohol, did you ever have the sense that it was your good friend until it became a crushing enemy? Well, I saw it as a... I don't know if I saw it as a friend, but I saw it as something that I could count on. I knew how it would act, but I also knew that it was extremely dangerous. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to 
what a good analogy would be there. But did it ever turn on you where all of oh, a yeah. sudden, you know, where, yeah. where this got to be too much? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nice. And that was scary. Yeah. So you had the, the emotional numbering and the restricted range of feelings. Do you ever have difficulty trusting or, or feeling betrayed? Well, I had the uh, rather mammoth feelings of betrayal and, and difficulty trusting. This kind of goes along with taking risks or healthy risks. And that continued on for a long period of time. Yeah, I remember when, when we were children, we always had to have this respect your elders mm-hmm. without question. And it, it, when after I came home, I always remember thinking to myself, what a bunch of load, what a load that is. I'll respect you if you're respectable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so that was one of the lessons that I picked up. Difficulty concentrating or remembering. Did you ever have issues? I had difficulty concentrating. It's one of the things mm-hmm. that worked against me and in college early on, as I just simply had a hard time focusing on the lessons at hand and ultimately left college with 42 degrees, excuse me, 42 credits short of graduation. I was pretty much a C student. And it was, so I left in 1974 and I returned to UWM in 2004 and completed the remaining credits by 2008 and I was a straight-A student. I, I did the homework. I did the reading. I participated in class. I was able to concentrate because I could live in the present tense. It was as uplifting an experience. I was around younger people and heard many great ideas. To this day, it's one of the one of the achievements I'm, I'm the most proud of. I think we should stop and applaud you for that. <laughs> that, that is really, that is really, really wonderful. But I, but I think, especially for younger veterans and, and family members of veterans, that's a very important point to make because one of the one of the things that kept us, a lot of us going in the military, or certainly one of the benefits, was the GI Bill and the mm-hmm. GI Bill for education. Right. So if you expect when you come home and get out of the military and you're going on to college. And then you get to college, you can't concentrate, you can't remember, you can't focus, you can't participate, you feel like you're in a foreign culture. That's a hugely disappointing it is. part of coming home and being a veteran is not being able to successfully complete college. Mm-hmm. And, and it's embarrassing in front yeah. of your family, in front of your friends, yeah. and, and you have no idea why. No. So that, that difficulty concentrating or remembering is really, really important. But but again, at this point, we're, we're, you're, you're not – looking for any way to resolve these issues, you're still, the drinking is is, is the preferred method of, of coping with this. Well, no, I mean, the drinking had stopped by the time oh, by, I went back to college. and by So the drinking ended in 90, in 89. And so from 89 onward, so that's 30 years. So let's see, from 70 to 89, we have a 20-year period there, basically. And now for the last 30 years, the, the really, life has been the flip side of all of that negative stuff. Right. But I'm referring to the first, your first attempt at college. That, oh, that, yes. That right, was right. still yeah, in, yeah. in the middle of a struggle. That's right. Unpleasant and past memories resurfacing. Well, they, they, they do come up, but now I feel unlike before as if I'm equipped to deal with them and they don't knock me off the block. They don't send me down any number of kind of blind alleys like they used to. I can cope with them uh, and recognize them for what they are, whatever that uh, experience might be, et cetera, and then deal with it. Okay. We've only got like four more here, Bob, but these are really important. Feelings of self-blame and survival guilt. Well, that was a a very powerful one, the element particularly of of survivor guilt. stayed with me for a long, long period of time, all of those 20 years, and might have been the one that went the deepest of of many of these negative feelings. What was the guilt? 
well, survivor guilt. That I, I lived, wow. and others died. Yeah. So that would lead us into the next one, shame. Yeah. What, what, what is, does shame have any part in this for you? Well, yes, I, it's kind of hard to separate one from the other, shame and survivor guilt. The way I heard it described once is guilt happens when we break an existing rule. You steal something, you get caught, you're guilty. Well, you shouldn't have stolen it. Shame happens when we've done something that we don't feel good about, even though we didn't necessarily break a rule. Well, you know, in the war experience, when your comrades die and you don't, it's not because you broke a rule. It's because of luck and circumstance and a bunch of other things that are beyond your control. So I often thought maybe what they should have called this was survival, survivor shame, because it really, shame is, I mentioned, use the word corrosive earlier, shame is just acid. It's just, it, it's going to find every nook and cranny inside your body. It's going to work away, eating away at the good positive things that a person could have and needs to have. It's going to make their life absolutely miserable. Right. So, so now we take that shame, that corrosive the acid part of mm-hmm. the shame and, and all these other emotions, we put them up against the patriotism, the honor. That's a huge conflict right there. Yeah. But do you think there's a little bit of shame in what the human race does to each other? Oh, I do. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, it, and it's not just America, but it just in general, right. that sense of shame of almost rage at what the human beings mm-hmm. do to each other and the technology designed to do it. And, and keeping in mind, I, I think we would agree that you and I are both big bad of the military. We understand uh, national defense right, and all that right. sort of thing. And I'll leave it at that. How about suicidal thoughts? No, fortunately, I, I did not have those. Okay. Loss of a sense of order or fairness in the world, expectations or doom and fear of the future. Well, yeah, and, and this took on some rather comic proportions for a time. I was fearful that we were all going to be hit by uh, meteorites and dies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could it happen? Yeah, sort of, but will it? Probably not. So there's that. Fortunately, those kind of thoughts have greatly subsided, and it makes for a much more peaceful existence. Two more. One of them is revenge. Any sense of revenge in you for people you served with, people on opposing sides, people when you came home? Any, any, and and I, I think this refers to revenge that is more along the line of what you wanted to do to the car salesman, yeah, yeah. you know. No, fortunately, I, I don't. I don't have any feelings of revenge. In fact, it's that's really been turned inward. Introspectively, I have a a hope that certain elected officials, certain people that are in positions of power, would just have some enlightening as to what their actions are doing to humanity. That there's there's much in life that is larger than a single individual, yet. Certain single individuals have a remarkable amount of power over many, many others. And in those instances where the single individual has the power over many, many others and they're not using that for the betterment of that group of people, I find that just horribly discouraging and and painful. So I can only, but I I don't have any desire to extract uh, or exact revenge on them, nor do I on the on the soldiers that fought for the North Vietnamese Army or the Viet Cong or 
Mm-hmm. It's just those those feelings are gone. Uh, just out of curiosity, the, the the political view you have of these people who it's so easy to send other people to war, right. would you put them in the category of your friend who said, so how did you like war? Well, <laughs> they are out I mean, of touch. But, yeah, they are yeah, out of touch yeah. with the actuality yeah, of it, the real experience yeah, right, of it, right, sure, right. the horrors of it. Yes. This will be the last one for, for the question that these were posed on common response to the fear. I think this is a big one for a lot because I think sometimes at war, some people lose God, other people find God. Anger toward religion or belief system or, or loss of your beliefs? Did, did that ever well, happen? I had a Catholic upbringing, grade school and high school, and no longer practice Catholicism. However, I have a very deep sense of, of spirituality. I don't, for instance, see myself as being the most important thing in the universe. In fact, I think I'm pretty much just a speck. <laughs> <laughs> I think I play a role in an important one. I think that, you know, without sounding like Yoko Ono here, I think the most important <laughs> thing in life is is to be kind to other people and to do that at street level, day by day. I think that I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. I do think my desire and choice is to try to live as good a life as I can for the sake of the human race. So, yeah. so would terms, if I were to mention terms like love and forgiveness and uh, judgment, mm-hmm. uh, does love come into, and I'm not talking about, oh, I love that music, or, I, you know, mm-hmm. I love this person, but love in general, is that a powerful emotion? Oh, toward, I think so. Yeah. 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 Is that kind of an antidote to the whole experience of war, or, or at least some of the it healing? Can be. I found nature to be particularly powerful, and yeah, somewhere to make a, a wonderful connection with something larger than myself. And somewhere where I'd see, a, although nature can be a violent place, left to its own devices, as we see with wildfires and, and uh, hurricanes and floods, it can be a, a place of, of utter calmness and uh, serenity. So, so when you say that this nature is bigger than yourself, could we extend that and say it's something bigger than the human race? There's something much larger. Oh, I think so. You know, yeah. the concept yeah. of life is much more... In- Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again. Would I ever be able to? So the I think one of the really vital things to mention here, and I, I learned this and, and many others have learned this through a lot of trouble and difficulty, is it is so vital to reach out to someone. If you have had a combat experience or have had an experience in the military that has caused you trauma, for instance, if you are a female and you've been raped, whatever the case may be, if there is some negative feeling in there from whatever the instigating factor might be, I, the sooner you can seek out a connection with a, a counselor or a therapist or someone 
or a group of people that are of like mind, the, the healthier your life is going to turn. We, as warriors, were risk-takers to the highest degree. We risked our lives, and we survived. And now, in recovery, we face the possibility of making yet another risk, and that is to reach out and make a connection with people we likely don't know to talk about things we'd rather not just because those that have gone before us say, this is going to help you get better. And I think to the degree that anyone, any individual can do that, they will find the healing coming back at them with just a fabulous velocity. Right. Would, would you say that it would be more attractive for you to go and ask for help if you were to put it more in terms of, I'd like to find out the answers for why I'm having this feeling, or I'm ha- I'd like to find out the answers for why I'm having this reaction, and how do I get that answer? I need that answer so I can resolve this so that it's not sitting there and tormenting me or causing my life anguish. And then if you could just make, make a quick reference to the loss of years in the struggle to avoid getting help when, it, when it's inevitable that you will have to do that. I mean, there, there's so much time in life lost oh, that is, is precious. Yeah. And, of course, the question then becomes, what could you have done with that time and energy that is simply not there and will never be there again? Yes, to whatever degree, if, as you suggested, finding the answer to something is, in fact, the lock, the key that unlocks that mystery and leads you down the path, then that's the thing to search for and to seek out in whatever form you can try to find it. Right. And, and could, could we also go on to say that there are so many stigmas about getting help, but at this point, you've been through war, you've been through the military. You don't owe anybody anything except primarily to yourself first to get the answers, to, to resolve the issues that you have. That should be a number primary, a, a primary goal, and there should be no stigma about that. I mean, it doesn't even make sense to have a stigma because these are really reasonable responses to the experience you've had. And I think what, what can make it difficult, and this is where we a lot of us should be careful, especially, as you say, with the military sexual trauma, these still happened in the culture of the military where our expectations were patriotism, honor, glory, all of these wonderful things of being an American warrior. So they can make asking for help much more difficult. But don't, if we think of it more of just getting the answers to resolve the issues that we have, I, I think that's a, a much better start than worrying about this as stigmatizing mm-hmm. to your experience. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. There should be no stigma whatsoever. And, you know, it, this starts with a, with a simple but profoundly difficult for some step to take. It does. And, and once that step's taken, there's good stuff waiting. Bob, you're qualified to be in a conversation. <laughs> Last word for you. That was it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And and I I do hope you'll come back and visit us again because it's very, very valuable information. But but thank you very much for, for participating. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, 
Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.